So Romans 9, as we pick a book at a time and we go through it a verse at a time. Trying to see what God has for us. Uh, we covered a bit last week. It's one of those sections that, uh, even after writing for this morning, it's, it's a difficult passage, and it's one that um, kind of breaks up churches into denominations. They're like, why some believe one way and some believe another way? And <clears throat> I still don't know that I'm doing a very good job you know, uh, explaining my, my stance on this, but I'm trying to go through it at the text as it is. And so I will say at the outset, if you're ever like, what, what's your standing? How would you answer this out? I can lay out exactly how I think the way I think uh, concerning these issues as far as election, predestination, and things. Um, but I'm sticking with the text this morning and not putting in a lot of my other arguments. I'm just going to look at what it has and take what Paul has used uh, because he's trying to get us to have an understanding uh, for why God says what he says, why God does the way he does the things he does, and some of that is to remind us that his ways aren't our ways, and uh, we don't see everything that God sees, and the things that might seem right unto us or be logical unto us, that doesn't work with him because he sees so much bigger and has so much in store. So we're in Romans 9, and um, I want to cover some ground again if we start at verse 6, Romans 9, verse 6, it says, not as though the, the word of God had taken that effect, for they, that are, or for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And we started with that one, and that's where he's saying not everyone who claims, everyone who's born Jewish is actually a child of God would be one way of putting it. Or we would use the phrase today, not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian would be our viewpoint. A lot of people might think they are, uh, but they aren't. A lot of people might uh, think that, well, because I'm born in a Christian family, that makes me a Christian. I'm born in a Christian country, that makes me a Christian. Um, In a sense, more likely to, but uh, no, unless you have repented of your sins, and made a personal decision for Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian, even though you be in a Christian family and be involved in a Christian church and that you might live in a Christian country. You personally have to make a specific decision to do that, to become a Christian. It's a matter of faith, not a matter of birth in that sense, in a physical sense. And so he is covering that. And so he's talking, he's using Israel as this example because he's also talking about Israel as a whole because he is Jewish. Verse 7 says, Neither... Because they are the seed of Abraham, are they the children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And so he is using an example because he is addressing Jewish people, thinking in which they would have. They're like, well, yeah, we're a descendant of Abraham. You know, and so, yeah, we're out of Isaac's line. And so, so we have it. But what, what's not spoken here that he's, is implied, I think, is that we should be thinking about that whole scenario, that whole story. Isaac's not the first son, right? Ishmael is the first son. Because remember, you know, God told him that he would have a son, but it wasn't happening on Abraham's time frame. They're thinking, we're getting, we're already way too old. You know, this is already impossible. You know, Sarah laughs, you know, so it's like, uh, we need to maybe help God out. I I don't know, or something, you know. So if you remember, Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, her her handmaiden, servant in the house, and and which was custom at that time. You can look at the Harabi code and everything else. It's like, you know, a, a descendant even of that would be considered as a descendant. And so that's when Ishmael was born. But God says, no, it's not the firstborn. You know, that would be the firstborn son of Abraham. It's the firstborn son that I pick, and I, I pick Isaac. And so it, it's, and I think Paul brings this up at the beginning here, kind of like, okay, we understand this. 
but I think a lot of people then would argue, it's like, yeah, it's the firstborn uh, was Sarah. That's, that's what makes it, you know, because there's two different women involved, and so maybe that's it. You know, so God chooses Isaac because he's wanting it to be specifically with her, because that's who he was talking about early on. It's different moms, you know, so that firstborn might not work. I, I could think that, and we, and we could think that. But Paul's not thinking that. He's trying to show us something differently. Uh, jump down to verse 10. And I can do that because we've covered these verses before. And so, so I'm jumping ahead to kind of pull up the key, key thing. Verse 10 says, And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. And so now he's going to bring up the example of Rebecca. So here is when this is Jacob and Rebecca, and then this is one woman, two children, twins. You know, so he's kind of making it a little more... You know, there's no argument here about who's the father. You know, it's like, and who's the mother? It's one woman, two different children. Verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And so they've not done anything. They're not even been born yet. And God says the younger is going to serve, or the older is going to serve the younger. I'm picking the younger one. Verse 12, it is said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. So they weren't even born yet, so there was nothing that they did, there was nothing that was going on, there's no confusion about who the mom is, there's no confusion about who the dad is, but God says, I'm not going to do it in the way that men think, men always think the oldest one, you know, you pick the, the older son and that's how it'll be, he goes, no, I'm going to pick the younger one. Now is that because God knew that he was going to be a sneak and that he was going to uh, disguise himself as Esau and get the birth, you know, get the, the blessing upon him by wrapping himself in goat skins and filling him and, and by other dubious things that he did? No, that's just him, them not trusting God. Who knows how God would have done it any other way. But, but I think the point in all this is that I'm not picking the firstborn. I'm picking the secondborn to let you know that it's not about your birth. It's not your flesh. It's nothing that you can do in the flesh and birth order or who your parents are. None of that puts you into my family. You have to repent and trust in me, you know, that I'm the one who chooses. And so it's nothing in the flesh. So I think part of this is to show us that you can't trust the flesh. It's nothing in the flesh. It's nothing that you do. Um, we went to uh, uh, the amphitheater last night, and we watched part of Encanto. And um, uh, before we got going, the kids were playing on uh, the playground, and two girls walked up to Elaine and I, and they had their name badges on. You know, so I'm already like, okay. Here comes the Mormons. Uh, and so they did, and we had a pleasant conversation. And, you know, and so then I started turning up some heat, and, you know, trying to knock the rust off talking to Mormons and uh, was asking them some things, and I was, took them through the law, and are you guilty or not, and all this. And they, and they kept saying it's what they did, that Jesus Christ did things for them to ha- allow them to do good works. And I'm like, so you're trusting in your good works then. You know, and we didn't get it resolved. You know, shockingly. Uh, but uh, I, I hope to see them again. They said they're here for 18 months. But, but they were trusting in their, their works, you know, that, that's their works, it's their deeds that was doing it. And I was trying to get them to understand it's not our deeds, it's what Christ has done for us uh, that does this. And so you can't trust in your flesh. It's not what we do. So the flesh does nothing. The, 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 it's not our good behavior. None of us deserve it. It's what we need to realize. It's not a birth order. It's nothing. It's not your mother. God picks and that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Does it make me uncomfortable? A little bit. <laughs> but God picks us. God trustworthy. And I have a way in which I reason around that. Like I said, I can't get into all of it. But um, I think the, the danger with that when we're thinking that God picks who's saved and who's not saved, or God decides who's his or, or who's not, it sounds arbitrary or a little fatalistic. You know, 
uh, fatalistic determinism. Well, it doesn't matter what I do. God picks. Well, that's not the case. We also have free will. You know, but a lot of people argue with, well, why bother? Why try to do anything? And I think that might prove a little bit your disposition. You know, but you have free will. You are accountable for your actions. God is just when he sends anybody to hell because we are all sinners, right? It's amazing. I think the thing that we've got to get our, wrap our head around, it's amazing that God picks anyone. You know, it's only out of his goodness that he, none of us deserve it. None of us deserve rescuing. None of us deserve saving. None of us deserve any of that. It's by God's mercy and God's grace that anybody goes to heaven. That's what Paul's trying to get our mind around. He's trying to get the Jewish mind around. It's not your heritage. It's not who your father is. It's what Christ has done you know, to do this. Quit trusting in the works of the law. Quit trusting in your flesh, that's your, your birth line. Quit trusting in that. You need to come to a point where you need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Because we all deserve wrath. Remember, the first seven chapters of Roman is all about there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's proving the point that we all deserve God's wrath, and that's what makes chapter 8 so good. He tells you about the goodness on all the benefits that we get because he has chosen us, and we've repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Ishmael, if we, if we look back at it now, Ishmael has proven a good choice not to choose. Um, Ishmael hates Israel. They tried to kill Israel early, every day. And I was like, you know, they're launching missiles all the time because Ishmael becomes the modern-day Arabs. And so uh, they are at odds with Israel every point in time. Did God know all that in the past? Of course he did. And he's like, I look at these two lines, and one's just full of hate. One wants to destroy his brother at every turn. So I choose Isaac. Does God inform by all that? I think so. I think God's foreknowledge has to play a part in it. He knows everything, right? So it's there. Did God know about it? Yeah. Did God know about Esau? Yeah. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 13. It says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. And again, there's a lot I've read about, about how these words aren't, aren't what you and I think. We think of love and hate, um, love more, love less. Or, or, um, it's not necessarily like this vile, oh, I hate and despise. It's, it's not that. It's, it's, he chooses one. He esteems one over the other. Um, this is, Esau becomes the Edumeans. Ed Indumenians or whatever, that, that empire. And out of that line becomes uh, Herod. And if you remember Herod, he's the one who tried to kill Jesus, you know, by killing all the babies. You know? And so that's the way they have been the entire time. You know, so does God know? He looks and says, well, Esau and them are going to be opposing him at every turn. You know, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm picking, I'm picking uh, uh, Jacob. You know, I'm not, I'm not picking them. And it's interesting to note that when you read this, verse 13, as it's written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. This is a verse that's in Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It's quoted here. But even at Malachi, the first time God says this, that Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated, it's been 1,300 years since they've been dead before he says it. Before then, you know, when, when they're both alive, it's like free will. The options are here. How do you choose? If you were to look at it, you would think God loved Esau too because Esau became a mighty nation. He was blessed. He was rich. He had all kinds of things. He had all kinds of opportunities. He had all kinds. Sure seems like God's favors on him. 
But after years and years of what they've done and how the line continues to go, he's like, yeah, that line. They hate my people. They hate the ones I've chosen. They hate my city. And so, yeah, I'm against them. They have a pattern. A pattern of responsibility is upon them. They have guilty actions that they have been performing by showing that they hate their brother here. That they have a long line of history of hating Jacob. They've been trying to wipe them out. So I think the main point we need to think that God is not choosing any, meeny, miny, mo. You know, he's not just going, uh, you guys. You know, it's not arbitrary. God has method to his madness, that God is in charge and God is in control and God can do what he wants is what he's going to continue to build to. But I think God's foreknowledge surely plays a part in who he chooses. I know how you're going to respond to the gospel. I choose all those who are in Christ because if you're in Christ, I've chosen Christ. That might be one way uh, that I've reconciled it. I've chosen Christ before the foundation of the world and if you put yourself in Christ, then you are a chosen one. Do you have that opportunity to put yourself in Christ now? Yes, you do. Repent and trust in him. And the second part that Paul is going to argue here is that God can do whatever he wants. Look at verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion to whom I will have compassion. Uh, I think a story from Jesus will help us understand this. When he's saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 20 that I think will help explain this to us. So turn to Matthew 20. We'll start with verse 1. Matthew 20, verse 1. Familiar, familiar parable. But think of it in terms that we're talking about. We're talking about election. We're talking about the one whom God chooses to be his. He's talking about that God can um, be merciful to whom he wants to be merciful. That's the point of the story. God shows mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. So now let's read this parable with that mindset in place. So Matthew 20, verse 1, says, For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, uh, he sent them to his vineyard. So he's going down, and there's a place where everybody gathers, you know, where they're going to be hired for the day. And so he's like, I've got nothing to do. I need some. I need a job. And so they go down and stand. And so the guy pulls up his pickup truck, and he looks like, hey, you, you guys want to look at my vineyard? I agreed to give you a penny a day. And they're like, great. They pile in the truck, and he sends them to his farm to go work that day. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing uh, idle in the marketplace. So he goes back, he just goes back again and sees there's more people that's not hired. So he hires them. He doesn't set a price with them, though, verse 4. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. They're like, he's like, trust me, I'll pay you a fair wage. Uh, verse 5, again he went out about the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and did likewise. And so he keeps going out, and he finds more people there looking for work, and he hires, seems like all of them. Verse 6, anybody who's willing, you willing to work? Let's go. We'll work for food, get in the truck. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, figuring a twelve-hour workday, I think, he went out. And found others standing idle, and he saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? And they said unto him, Because no man hath hired us. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that ye shall receive. So they only have one hour to work. Uh, verse 8. So when even was come, and the Lord of the vineyard was, uh, came unto his steward, 
They said, call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And so he starts with the last ones that he hired. Verse 9. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, he received every man a penny. If you remember, that's what he agreed to pay the other guys. And you're thinking, big deal, penny. I meant more to them than our penny does today. And so, uh, but he gives them the full day's wage. So imagine you're the guy that was first hired. You've know, been there all day. What's your mind doing? That's where the story goes. Verse 10. But when the first came, that was supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house. They're like, what's going on? And so we have their murmuring recorded here, verse 12, saying that um, the last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. We worked all day. We worked in the hot sun. We didn't get lunch break. We just kept on going. And you paid them the same amount as you paid us. But you have to remember, they agreed to the penny when he hired them. He's not done anything wrong. He's like, I promised you a penny. I'm giving you a penny. That's his argument. Verse 13, but he answered one of them and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Then uh, take uh, that as thine is, and go thy way, and I will give unto the last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? That means, are you envious? Verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many shall be called, and few are chosen. So he's, he's like, can I do with my money what I want? Because God's the, the landowner here. His money is his money. They agreed on the penny. And then he's just very generous with those who only worked an hour or two. You know, he just gives them the same. And he's basically, his argument is like, can I be generous? I'm being fair with you. You agreed to a penny. You said that's okay. I can be generous to them. It's my money. And he's like, it's fair. What we did was a fair agreement. You agreed to it. You're just envious now because I gave them the same thing because I showed them generosity. Um, I think um, maybe when he comes back, you know, he just has compassion as he finds those guys standing there. Maybe they had something that tied them up during the day, and he saw that they were hungry, and he knows they have family too, and I'll give them a penny. I hate for them to only work an hour and just get a fraction. So he does whatever. See, so because we're like those who have repented and trusted Christ as Savior, we have salvation. We didn't deserve it. He's given it to us. And God can pick whoever he wants to, right? He can choose whoever he wants. We're inheriting this. We're not earning it. I didn't earn salvation. Not like God's like, wow, man, Brian did some great deeds. I'm going to have to save him. That's not it. I didn't make God have to. I was being the opposite. It's not like, man, I really got to pay him off now. God did it because I I deserve wrath. I deserve God's judgment. I, I deserve hell for all eternity for who I was and what I'm doing. God's just very generous. He says, I'll choose you. See, the Jews thought they deserved it because of their birth. Oh, we have inheritance because we're son of Abraham. You know, so kick back and eat, be easy. You know, we can do whatever we want. You know, we're in. You know, I'm born Jewish. We're in. We're solid. And Paul's like, not all Israel is Israel. You know, are, are, you, are you part of this or not? You know, how are you living? No, you have to believe. Faith is a part of this. Faith is a factor. Whether you be Jew or Gentile, see, we're, we're kind of the last hour guys that are getting grafted in. You know, the Jews have had all this heritage. Now God shows his grace towards the Gentiles, and he's like, I'm going to reward them however I want. 
You know, I, they can, I can show mercy on whom I want to show mercy, be it Jew or Gentile alike. Matter of fact, I've shown and I've outpoured myself to the Jewish nation. I've shown myself in a special and miraculous way. I've made you keeper in the heirs of the law. You've had the Bible. I've shown myself. I've done miracles. I've performed all these things. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ ramps it up. And it's one of the times when the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Because he's like, you remember Elisha? You know, wasn't there a lot of women that were starving during that day? And he went to some, you know, foreign lady and he fed her? Or, or how about when... Um, was it Naaman, you know, who was, uh, uh, had the leper? He goes, wasn't there a whole bunch of other lepers? And yet he goes to the leader of the Assyrian army and he cleanses him. God can choose whoever he wants and do whatever he wants. And they're like, we're going to kill you. you know, and he manages to pass through. He's like, no, I can choose who I want to choose. I've chosen to work through you, but you've been stubborn and stiff-necked and you've not done it. So God calls out whoever to repent. It's available. We are responsible for how we respond to that call. The billboards are shining. The opportunity is there. Do we take advantage of it or not? Who deserves it? Nobody. But it's available for whosoever. I got a couple of stories. I think maybe it'll help it out. But I think that we can relate to in uh, this day and age. There's a CEO of a company, and he's yelling at his employees. He's like, you guys are lazy. I've never group, worked with a lazier group of people. You're a bunch of slackers and do-nothings. Every time I turn around, it seems like you're just not producing, you're just not doing anything. You're nothing but a bunch of lieabouts. You have no initiative. Zero. I don't even know why I keep you on. You all need to be a little bit more like me, your CEO. Why? By the time I was 15, I would inherited my first $5 million. What do you have to show for yourself? You didn't do anything. You inherited it. It was who your family was that you got it. That's us. That guy had nothing to do. He's no example other than my father was gracious and gave me $5 million. Our father was gracious and he gave us salvation. It's an inheritance that we have. Who deserves an inheritance? Nobody. We didn't deserve it. It's given unto you. Sometimes by family lines, sometimes not. You know, that's what makes the Agatha Christie movie. Whoa, well, they got the money. You know, so it's, it's not that. Salvation is given to us out of God's goodness. It's an inheritance given to us. Not because you deserve it. Maybe another example would be, there's a young man, and he's standing in the CEO's office. You know, top floor. view of the whole city. The boss says, you have really outdone yourself. You hired on at a young age, and you rose through the ranks at record time. He says, you just click through all the management positions. You know, from the lower management up to the higher management to the district manager to regional manager. So now here I find yourself, you've worked yourself up to be almost as high as me. You're going to be second in command. It astounds me that at such a young age that you could stand here and be in this position, just right under me and you know, second in command of this whole big empire, this whole company. And the young man says, oh, shucks, Dad. You know, we can relate to that, right? He didn't work and earn it. His dad moved him up through the ranks. His dad did all that. That's what Christ does for us. It's not my work to do it. It's, it's my father who's moved me, me through any place, through anything what's going on. It's the father who's done it. It's him showing it to it. It's something I've inherited. It's not something I've earned or deserved. Now, once I'm his, you know, I have the benefit of being his. But while I was lost, I had his wrath upon me. But since he's shown to show his kindness to me, you know, I have the benefit of that kindness. I'm all shucks, Dad. It was all you gave me to do. So we are receivers of his mercy. Look back at Romans 9.
So we just receive his mercy. Romans 9 verse 17 says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my, that my might might be declared throughout all the earth. Pharaoh, what a great opportunity. It's the world stage. The leader of the world, one world government at that time, but basically. Pharaoh's in charge of it all. But every time God showed himself, God would perform a miracle declaring that I am the God of the universe. Not just the God of the Gentiles, or the God of the Jews, sorry. I'm showing you that I am a powerful God, and that he takes on each and every one of the Egyptian gods, and he defeats them. He makes a mockery of them right in front of his face. And it's there, it's clear, it's obvious. You know, even He even gets Janez and Jambres, that's the two magicians that we learn their names in Hebrews. And, uh, and they even tell him, like, this is of God. You know, there's times where like, we can't mimic this. You know, it's amazing they can mimic any of it and that they'd want to because they're all of them were plagues upon themselves. They made it worse. Uh, but um, it finally gets to the end and they're like, you need to wisen up. This is God that we're dealing with. This isn't some little G God. This is the capital G, big God. You need, you need to wisen up to this. But every time Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? No, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't want to turn you over. You're my slave. You're my free workforce. No. You know, and so I, he says no each and every time. In Exodus 7, verse 13. No. Exodus 7, verse 22. No. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Exodus 8, 15. Pharaoh hardened his heart. No. Exodus 8, verse 19. Pharaoh hardens his heart. No. I'm not letting my people, your people go. Exodus 8, verse 32. No. I'm not letting your people go. Exodus 9, verse 7. No. I'm not letting you go. He hardens his heart. Uh, Exodus 9, verse 34. No. I'm not letting you go. I'm hardening my heart yet again. Exodus 9, verse 12. God says, I'll harden your heart. Now, is God arbitrary in doing that? Or is he doing what Pharaoh has already shown himself that he wants to do? I would say that Pharaoh has made his decision and God honors it. I will harden your heart. And I'm going to kill all the firstborn. And then you're going to let my people go. And they did. So Pharaoh was made for that time, for that place. Was God fair to him? Yeah, God had shown himself openly and amply. But Pharaoh revealed who he was. Then God gave him, he received his choice, you know, for his free will. He chose to harden himself, harden his heart against God. How many people have an opportunity to stand uh, before one of God's representatives and have miracles performed and then turn a blind eye? Like, I don't see it. Uh, it's like in Glen Rose, Texas, there was a time when they were, uh, there was a riverbed there. And it's in the news again right now because they've had droughts. Uh, but the thing that was made in the news back in the day was that they had found dinosaur foot footprints, but the thing that was miraculous about this time back in the 70s is that human footprints were stepped in on top of the dinosaur footprints. And it says it looked like they were running away, I would say, from a flood. You know, so it looks like the dinosaurs are running, and the human foot footprints are there, and they're stepping in the mud, and then it all petrified, and it's made this riverbed uh, there, and I think it's Glen Rose, Texas. And so... Uh, there had been some that had been exposed, and all the critics had said that, oh, these are just artists that had carved them out to make it look like it. You know, Christians, you know, you can't trust them. They're going out there to try to make it look like it's a young earth and all this. And so the thing that was making this as unique is that they were there, and they were removing a top layer uh, of, of, the, of the creek bed, and then underneath it was this next layer of mud that had dinosaur footprints and human footprints smashing together. And right now, more have been exposed because it's all been... Uh, um, uh, they don't have the human and the dinosaur together, but it has human footprints, and they're big, Sasquatch size. Not you know, big, that's because they're maybe they're bigger back then. But there's these big, long footprints uh, of humans that they're finding there right now. You can look it up; it's kind of trending on the internet. Um, but 
so Nova, you know, uh, travel back in time with me. All, most of us remember PBS Nova, right? You know, with, the, with all their scientific shows. They were kind of the scientific before Discovery Channel. So they go down to report this. We're going to give a report. And so they're back here, and they're digging up the footprint, human footprints together, and uh, they're doing it right live on camera, and they're seeing it. There's no time for anybody to carve and put it in there. And yet the reporter is standing like this, and here they're doing that work, and the camera's showing, and he refused to turn his head to see those footprints be revealed. And he said, we've seen no evidence of it. It still seems like fraud because he refused to look. Stiff-necked. He didn't want to see the evidence. His mind was made up. You can't have man and dinosaurs together because the world's millions of years old, not 6,000 years old like the Bible says. He had hardened his heart to the evidence. He had hardened his heart to the facts. It was right there. He could have looked and seen and changed his whole world. But he refused to. And then perpetrated the lie upon the American people. So yeah, Pharaoh's that way too. God shows himself. He could have humbled himself and repented. But he didn't. So God gave him what he asked for. Look at verse 18. Therefore, hath he mercy on them whom he will have mercy, and whom he will harden, and whom he will he hardeneth. Verse 19, they will say then unto me, why doth thou yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? That's where we got to, where most people will go. Well, then God can't blame me. He made me this way. You know, God put it, you know, I, and I can't resist God's will. God is determined I'm a lost person, so I might as well live like I'm lost. I think he just revealed that you're a lost person because you don't want to change your lost ways. They're saying it's irresistible. God has decreed it. I, I can't change it. I think with an attitude like that, you're proving that you're like Pharaoh. You're hardening your heart, you're hardening your heart, so God will harden your heart. If it doesn't bother you. Or they'll say, God is mean. Why would God do that? Why would God pick some people and have them victims of wrath? Or is God just? No, he, he, he's just because we all deserve his wrath. It's only his mercy that he picks anybody. So God pours out his mercy on some. Uh, who? Who does God pour his mercy on? I have no idea who's going to pour his mercy upon. That's why we're to go forth and preach the gospel to every creature. I don't know who's, who's going to be chosen and who's not chosen. It'll be those who choose him. I know that. And so I give them the free opportunity. Saul seems like an unlikely choice to, for salvation. Saul went around and was killing Christians. He was actively trying to stop the church. He hated Jesus Christ and what they were doing, what they stood for. Enough that Jesus stopped him. He's like, hey, why are you kicking against me? Why, why are you trying to do this? He seemed unlikely. But God saved him. So God can take the most unlikely people and change them, intercede on them. Some late in life, some early in life, some in the middle, and any kind of thing. So who, who chooses him? The ones who God chooses. And so, yeah, so we don't know who he's picking. And so God, well, there's a word for this. When God does what God does, it's called sovereignty. God is sovereign. That means God has supreme authority or rule over everything. God has rule over everything. And it's a dangerous thing to start shaking our fist at God saying, how dare you and who are you to do this? He is creator. We are his creation. We are his. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, the rules of my house always were, on about yours, my toy, my rule. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, and according to my grandkids, Grandpa, you got a lot of toys. I'm like, I do. And uh, you can play with that one. And you it's my toy, my rules. We don't play with it like that. Remember, I can remember one time being at Trafalgar Elementary down here, and uh, I think there was some meeting going on with the parents, and all of us were out in the middle, and uh, one town kid there had a football. And so we're getting ready to play the game, and you know, it's like, and the rules change every two minutes. My ball, my rules. 
You know, you got to two-hand touch me you know, below the waist, you know, but you can't do it hard. You can't do it. You, know, you had all these different rules and all that. Like, you're not much fun to play with with your ball. Anybody else got a ball? <laughs> it's like because we don't want to play with his rules. But whoever had, you know, they made the rules. God's creator. We're his creation. It's his rules. We're to go by those. Uh, we're to live by that. Look at verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Do we be mad at God for making us how he's made us and put us where we are and do them how we are? Verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay or the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another of dishonor? That's a good example. A potter in clay. And we often use that in Christianity, that God is the potter and we are the clay. And he's forming us and he's molding us and making us to the vessel that he wants to use us for. You can make a cool vase. You can put all your skill and your trade into it. And when you get done with it, by the time you have it all painted and you have it all fired up and you have it all done, that they can put it in a museum and as a display piece of one of the finest pieces of pottery ever made. That people will just come in to revere it. It holds the most beautiful flowers and is used in this way. But that same potter can take that same lump of clay and he can mold a chamber pot. You know, to be used as a restroom. In the, it's the same clay, the same potter, but he uses some to display his great handiwork in a beautiful way and some to be used in a very lowly way, in that way. It's arbitrary. It's up to him. He can do what he wants. God can do what he wants. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is over all. Look at uh, verse 22. <clears throat> what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, Endureth much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. God's long-suffering. They keep disrespecting him. They keep dishonoring him. They keep rejecting him. They keep hardening their heart to his opportunities and his offers for salvation. So God says, I will use you to display my glory. You will, I will receive glory for my creation, and yours is destruction. You will see that you do not dishonor me. Man. So God will show his power. In Egypt, he did it by showing his people uh, that he was in charge and leading them out of Egypt. He defeats all of the Egyptians' God. He defeats Pharaoh, and he marches them out, showing that. Or, he uses Pharaoh there as that vessel of wrath. Or, he'll come to Trafalgar, Indiana, and save the 13-year-old boy, because he decides to show mercy upon him. Does he deserve it? No. I can tell you what that 13-year-old boy is like. He says, but I choose him, and I will use him, and I will transform his life, and I'll receive the glory through that. Just like I received the glory through Pharaoh by just taking and showing and making an open display of my power being stronger than his, I will show that I can be kind to whoever I want to. And I'll be a witness to the world. Both are. Both are. We, we don't know. That's why we're required to witness to everybody. Free will is ours to use, to repent or to reject Jesus Christ. God will honor either one. The choice is ours. And so I think that's where a lot of the time I don't focus on who did God choose other than when it comes to the point, well, why would he choose me? Just out of act of sheer gratitude. One of the early songs I remember my mom strumming on the guitar sometimes or at least singing around the house was, why me, Lord? What did I ever do to deserve you one? The blessings of life. Why me, Lord? Tim, I think, was singing that Wednesday. Right? <laughs> but yeah. So God 
honors our choice. That's why free will is such a dangerous thing. If you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, he will save you. If you reject and you run away, he will honor that too, and he will destroy you for all eternity and honor your choice. And it'll be just because you deserve it. He will honor your rebellion. He will honor your sin and say, you want to live in it? You want to pay the price for it? You think you can do it on? You can pull yourself up and you're a self-made man. You can do it all yourself. You will stand on your own and this is what you get. And your rejection. Shocking. I mean, think about what he's done to the lost. What he's done for us. He shows to save us in our lost state. He sends his son. His son to die on our behalf. What a generous offer. My son will die in your place. He will take the punishment for your sin upon himself and I will spare you. I will be merciful to you and I've made a way for that through my son, Jesus Christ. And you're like, no thanks. What? God has laid down his son's life and his son willingly laid down his life on your behalf. He dies for you, the most torturous death that's been created by man and you're like, no, no, I'll do it by myself. What an insult. What an insult. His son, who died to redeem you, and you say no? Let's look at one last verse, Hebrews 10. Or one last passage. Because I think of this fairly often. Hebrews, Hebrews 10. And it's talking about our accountability because we, we've, we've heard who Jesus Christ is. And Acts 17 says that he has appeared before all men. Well, that's Romans 1. Uh, but Acts 17 talks about how he's put us all where we are, when we are, where we would most likely find God, even how far we would travel, the things we would hear, the bounds of our habitation, where you would live, the things that you would experience. Where, why does he do that? He puts you where you are, when you are, and the things that you experience, where you would most likely find him that you, so that you would reach out and, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. That's Acts 17 there at the end after um, Mars Hill. And here we are in, in, in Hebrews 10. So that's been re- revealed. In verse 25, he tells us not to forsake our assembly of ourselves together, even more as we see the day approaching. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus Christ died once. There's nothing else that's going to save you. Going to hell and suffering is not going to be a payment that all of a sudden reaches to the end. They're like, oh, your debts are paid. You've sinned against an eternal God, and so you have to pay and suffer eternally. That's how our lex talianos, you know, eye for an eye, you know, and so we, we sin against it. Life for a life. You sin against the eternal God, you suffer for all eternity. And so that's why the smart thing is repent and trust in him. Uh, verse uh, 27. But a certain fearful looking for judgment and a fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries, because now you know there is a hell and that you are guilty. Verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And so if someone heard you blaspheme God's name and it said OMG or said Jesus too wrong, two people heard it, they would stone you to death without mercy. Verse 29, of whom such more punishment suppose ye shall be he that thought worthy to have trodden under the foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So basically he's saying it's like if you could just blaspheme God's name, and that brought the death penalty. How much more worse is the punishment if he says, my son Jesus Christ has died for you. He came on the cross. He suffered for you. He was buried. He rose again the third day for you. And you're like, 
no thanks, and you stomp on it. It's trodden under the foot of the Son of God. I always think of a cigarette butt that someone's done getting it, so they throw it down, they stomp on it, and you drive over it, and you just grind your foot in the ground. You've trodden under the foot of the Son of God and said, no thanks, I'll do it my way. How much worse is punishment for them than just somebody who says a name casually other than someone who is totally understands and rejects him and says, ooh, boy, I would not want to know how much sore the punishment is one who's trodden under the foot of the Son of God. Verse 30, for we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's what I usually think about. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And yet he's made a way of escape for you. And he says, and I think he's honest, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Opportunity is there. We don't know who he's chosen and who's elected. But on the salvation, the opportunity is there for anyone. And so if you haven't done that, I'd say take it today. So I've tried to make it clear. And you don't want to be guilty of trodden under the foot of the Son of God. How much sore is that punishment going to be? Or you can repent and take it. You're like, but I don't deserve it. Exactly. Take the inheritance. Be the company's son. Well done, son. You moved up through the ranks. You deserve it. It's an inheritance. It's something given to you. Blessings upon blessings. You know, it's not who you're born with. It's not anything you can do in the flesh, whether your mom is or your parents are. He's shown us that. He's made those arguments. But he's given you the opportunity now. Don't prove it to where 100 years from now, he says, I hated that guy because he hated me. 